Turn with me, brothers and sisters, to our text this morning. We'll be looking once again at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, as we'll finish up our, our last point this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Hear with me then the reading of God's Word. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Thus far is the reading of God's Word. Well, brothers and sisters, last week we asked the question, what is it that consumes people so much that it causes them to attempt to predict the precise time of our Lord's return? Right? The very thing He says we cannot know. No one, not even Jesus Himself, knows the day or the hour. And yet, predictions run rampant. Now we said at its core, we thought that the cause was, was pride. Right? Man's natural response to being told that we cannot do something is to go after it, to try to do it, right? to try to obtain that which we cannot have. That's our, our natural inclination when we're told we can't or no, is I'll show you, watch me go and do it. And that response is no different for those who try to predict the day and hour of Christ's return. And so we see last week Paul is forced now to to write to the saints who are having these same questions about the Lord's return. And what does Paul say? He says, you have no need for me to write you these things. You already know all there is to know. You've been told. There's nothing new. But Paul goes on then to reiterate what the day of the Lord will be like. And in verses 1 and 3 in particular, he tells them what it will be like for the ungodly on that day. And we were able to get through the first two points in the, just a real quick brief uh, recap. The first point, remember, was that the day of the Lord for the ungodly will be an unexpected day. It will be unexpected as Paul compares it to the, the thief coming in the night. Right? The, the thief comes when you're, when you're unprepared, when you least expect it. All of a sudden, surprises you unexpectedly. This is how the day of the Lord will be for the unbeliever we learn. Right? They won't know anything's amiss. And all of a sudden, before they know it, Christ will return. Now the second point we said was that the day of the Lord for the ungodly will be a day that is misunderstood. Right? Paul tells us they'll be going around saying, peace and security. They'll be thinking everything's fine. They'll, they'll have this great sense of peace. But it will be a false sense of peace. As Paul says, sudden destruction will come upon them as Labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. You see, Christians will be continually pushed to the fringes of society. The morals of this world will continue to expand across the globe. This world will be feeling real good about themselves and their position in society and how things are changing. So much so that they're going to mock and they're going to say, Oh, I thought Christ was returning. Where is He, Christian? He's not coming back, is He? He's not coming back to save you, is He? Right? But they misunderstand the times, we said. 
They misunderstand that our Lord is long-suffering. They misunderstand that our Lord is patient. And before they know it, like labor pains upon a pregnant woman, which come out of nowhere, sudden, and bring a great amount of pain, our Lord too will come. And then that leads us to our third point, which will take up the remainder of the morning. And the third point is that the day of the un, for the ungodly, the day of the Lord for the ungodly, will be final. It will be final. The day of the Lord for the ungodly will be final. Now, one thing that we really haven't addressed, though, is what, in fact, is the day of the Lord. We've been talking about the day of the Lord, but what is the day of the Lord? And I purposely left that for today because it ties in very well with our third point. And so unfortunately for you this morning, what I'm going to have you do is a lot of page turning. And so I apologize ahead of time, but I think it's going to be helpful for all of us. It's going to be helpful for you to turn and for you to look at these words and to read them along with me and to not just hear me say them to you. And so first I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. Isaiah chapter 13. Now if you have a church Bible, you're in luck. It's page 576. If you don't have a church Bible, you're going to have to figure that out on your own. Isaiah chapter 13. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 13 to begin. We're going to look at a few different passages in order that we might understand the day of the Lord. Okay? So Isaiah chapter 13. The oracle concerning Babylon which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. Wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exalting ones. The sound of a tumult in the, is on the mountains and of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. The Lord in the weapons of His indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land of desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. From the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. And the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of offer. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. Now, brothers and sisters, how is the day of the Lord described here? A day of destruction? 
Pangs and agony will seize them. They will anguish like a woman in labor. Doesn't this sound familiar? It sounds a lot like what Paul has been describing about our Lord's second advent. And yet this passage that Isaiah here is describing is talking about something not too off in the distant future. He's talking about the destruction of Babylon. Yet interwoven in this text are obvious descriptions of not only that destruction, but of an eschatological day of judgment as well. He says the heavens will tremble, the earth will shake in the day of his burning anger. And this is what Paul himself picks up on when he references Isaiah in our text here. You see, Isaiah may have been predicting or describing one event from his perspective, but there was actual two events that were taking place as he is describing this. This is what we call prophetic perspective. Prophetic perspective. As the prophets are writing, they are describing from their perspective what is to take place. But God has a bigger view in mind, doesn't He? He has a bigger view in mind. And as we draw closer to the day of the Lord, the more we are able to see this. Now, I'm indebted to Kim Riddlebogger's book, A Case for Amillennialism. This is a a book I've used in my lead-up to many of these sermons. He's been very helpful. And I would tell you guys, go buy one and, and read it. I think it's very good. But he actually gives us an analogy of prophetic perspective that I think will be helpful for you guys to understand what it is I'm describing to you. Okay, So listen to this. This is his analogy. As I stand in the greater Los Angeles basin and look toward the mountains to the northeast, I see a a single mountainous ridge on the horizon. Yet, if I were to drive directly towards the mountains, I would soon realize that what appeared to be a single ridge was actually a, a series of hills, valleys, and mountains separated by many miles. So it is with many of the Old Testament prophecies. This is prophetic perspective. The the prophets are describing certain events that seem to be fulfilled at that time. But what we see is that they have more than one fulfillment. And this is what we see here in our text in Isaiah. As Isaiah is describing judgment that's going to come upon Babylon. But Paul says, no, 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 this isn't all that, that Isaiah is describing. Not only is he describing, yes, the destruction of Babylon, but he's also describing the day of the Lord. Christ's second advent, when he will return. Next, let me give you another example. Turn with me to Zephaniah, where we will see the judgment of Judah being described. And just as we've seen here, he's not only going to be speaking about one event, but also an eschatological day, a final judgment. And so, if you have your pew Bibles, it's, Uh, page 788, Zephaniah, we're going to look at chapter 1. I know you guys are like, there's a book called Zephaniah? Zephaniah, page 788, chapter 1, verses 14 to 18. The great day of the Lord is near. 
near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish. A day of ruin and devastation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. A day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. I will bring distress on all mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like the dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them. On the day of the wrath of the Lord, in the fire of His jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. How is the day of the Lord described here, brothers and sisters? A day of wrath, of distress, of anguish, of ruin, of devastation? A day of trumpet blast? That sounds not too obscure, right? That's something that we read not too recently. He says that all the earth will be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make all the inhabitants of the earth. Let me ask you, does this sound like judgment coming upon one nation? Zephaniah here is describing not only the day of the Lord and the destruction that's going to come upon Judah, he's talking about the day of the Lord and the destruction that's going to come upon the whole world when Christ returns. And Paul isn't the only one who picks up on this. Peter does exactly the same way. You don't have to turn here, but just listen. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 10, Peter says this, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and all the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Now, Peter knows what the day of the Lord is. Peter's very familiar with the Old Testament, is he? And yet, what does he say? He says that the the day of the Lord will be the end of all things. The day of the Lord which described these events in Isaiah and these events in Sephaniah. He is taking that same verbiage, the day of the Lord, and now he's using it and applying it to the day in which our Lord will return and destruction he will bring. That is the day of the Lord. Destruction comes. Heavens pass away. But this is not the only place, brothers and sisters. Turn once more to Joel with me. Joel chapter 2. If you have the church Bible, it is 762. 762. Now, starting in... Chapter 1 of Joel 2 is the beginning of the day of the Lord, but we're not going to start there. We're going to jump all the way to verse 28. So Joel chapter 2, and we're going to begin at verse 28 as he's describing here the day of the Lord. So hear with me this. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord. 
And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said, and among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Brothers and sisters, where do we see this again in Scripture? Is this not in Peter's sermon at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit? And yet, let me ask you, as we just read this, does that outpouring of the Holy Spirit and what took place in Acts chapter 2 fulfill what Joel said would come to pass? I don't think so. As Joel and Peter describe things that are going to happen to heaven and earth, and when we read New Testament descriptions of Christ's second advent, what do we see? We see these very same descriptions. Things are going to happen to heaven and earth. Don't be mad at me. I'm going to ask you to turn once more with me. One more time. I promise this is the last time. Luke's Gospel. Nobody needs a page number for that. Turn to Luke's Gospel. Chapter 21. We'll just look at verses 25 through 28. Luke here is going to describe our Lord's return. Luke chapter 21, starting at verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars, and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads, because redemption is drawing near. What do we learn here from Luke? Luke says that the heavens will be shaken. Distress will come upon the earth. This will be a worldwide event described in similar detail to what Joel's prophecy said, which seemed to have been fulfilled at Pentecost, yet which will not be fulfilled until Christ returns. And yet, although the day of the Lord is described thus far seems to be just one big sweeping day of judgment and destruction, it's more than that. For remember, right now we are describing what is going to occur to the ungodly. But for the believer, the day of the Lord has a, a much different character. Just look back if you still got your finger there to Luke uh, 21, verse 28, what, what does Luke say? Now, when these things begin to take place, what does he tell us to do? Straighten up, straighten up, raise your heads, because redemption is drawing near. The day of the Lord for us means redemption, brothers and sisters. And yet, in pointing all these texts out to you, and making you turn all these pages, this is what I want you to see. I want you to see one day, one day, Two different results. One day, two different results. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. Don't turn, just listen with me, please. Concerning the day of the Lord, Malachi says this For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in His wings. 
You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall and you should tread down the wicked for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on that day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. One day, two different results. The ungodly, arrogant, set ablaze. Those who fear the name of the Lord, he says the Son of Righteousness will bring healing. This is the point I've been trying to hammer home these last three or four weeks, brothers and sisters. When Christ returns, it's one return. When Christ returns, it's one resurrection of the dead. Right? Of both believers and unbelievers alike. When Christ returns, it's one general judgment of unbeliever and believer alike. This is what Jesus describes in Matthew's Gospel. I know I've, I've quoted this passage many times, but I think it's a, it's a very helpful uh, passage. In Matthew 25, when he, when he tells us when Christ returns, He's going to gather all people, right? And the, the sheep and the goats. And the, the sheep or the godly are going to be cast to eternal life. The, the, the unbeliever, the, the, the goat is going to be sent into eternal hellfire. I tried to show you this when we talked about even something as simple as language. Remember, I think it was two weeks ago, we talked about the word revealing in Scripture. And I, I pointed out two passages to you. One where we've seen that when the Lord is revealed from heaven, the ungodly are going to be destroyed by flaming fire. And then I showed you another passage where when our Lord is revealed from heaven, the saints are going to be perfected and with the Lord forever. You see, brothers and sisters, there is only one revealing. There is not two revealings. And that one revealing spells finality for everything that's temporal. And so we see that the the day of the Lord is the day when our Christ returns where the ungodly will be destroyed. And yet, it is also the day when those who fear Him will be healed. At this time, nothing can be changed. It is made final. Right? The day of the Lord is final. This is how it ties in with our third point. Right? And so I show you all of this. I provide you all these passages for you yourselves to go back and look at in your own spare time. Right? To demonstrate to you that there is no room for an earthly kingdom after Christ returns. There is no earthly thousand-year kingdom when Christ returns. There is no place for it we've seen in Paul's thought. There is no place for it we've seen in Peter's thought. There is no place for it in what Jesus describes. Right? When Christ returns on the day of the Lord, you either go to everlasting life or you go to everlasting destruction. That's it. That's the end. The day of the Lord doesn't come, as some would say, after a thousand-year millennial kingdom reign of Christ. He has a thousand-year earthly reign, and then he comes, day of the Lord, and he destroys the wicked. Is that what we've seen? No, that isn't what we've seen. This is also a reason why I wanted to point out in the Gospel. I wanted you to see we are living now in that millennial kingdom. Is Christ not right now reigning in heaven? Has Christ already become victorious? Has He not already triumphed? Have we who are believers in Christ not already triumphed with Christ? Are we not victorious already over sin, death, and the devil? And so what more is there? All that's left is when Christ returns on the day of the Lord, eternal destruction or eternal life. That's all Scripture tells us. 
No more. No more. And so I, I hope after a few weeks of this, I've been persuasive enough to make you all good on millennial boys and girls. But even if I haven't, if you're not, it's all right. We can still agree that when the day of the Lord comes, it, it does mean destruction. It does mean destruction. This is what Paul says in our text this morning. Destruction is going to come upon them like labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. But unfortunately, what we have to do then is to go on and, de- and to define what does destruction mean? What does destruction mean? Because there are many who read this and say destruction means annihilation. Destruction means annihilation. And annihilation is the belief that when Christ returns, the ungodly will be destroyed and will cease to exist. Or that their consciousness will cease. And this is really rooted in people's belief that if God is this God of love, He is this loving God. No matter how much these people have opposed Him and rejected His name and sinned against Him, He would never ever send anyone to hell for all of eternity where they would experience conscious agony and torment. But of course, what's the problem with that thinking, brothers and sisters? The problem with that thinking is that it starts with them. Right? They try to define what God's love looks like. They try to define how they think God ought to express His love, and then they carry that into their interpretation of what destruction means. And yet, we can all understand why they would do it, don't we? We're all human. We're all human. We all have those people that we love, don't we? Whether that's a, a father, a mother, a child, a sibling. And we want nothing more for them than that they would be saved and come to faith in Christ. Yet, what happens when they have rejected God? And they've said, ah, I don't believe in God. If, if hell's my destination then great, I don't care. And then they go upon their life living in that manner. It doesn't change the, the fact that we still love them immensely. And it's already terrible enough for us to think that when they die, they are going to be eternally separated from God forever. Right? What a terrible thought. And then what makes it even worse is to think that when they die and are eternally separated from God, that it doesn't just mean that they go into the ground never to be, never to exist again, but rather that it, it means eternal destruction, eternal and everlasting punishment and torment. People don't want to think that way. They don't want to imagine that for their loved ones who they know have departed and will not be with Christ. And so they try to turn destruction into annihilation. But destruction isn't annihilation. Destruction means to uh, ruin or, or doom. It doesn't mean annihilation. And so it's incumbent upon us as we develop our doctrine of last things to ask, well, what does this ruin or doom mean? And where do we turn to to learn? We turn to the Scriptures. Right? And we allow God's Word to tell us what this ruin, and ruin or doom means. Does it mean that we die and that's it? We no longer exist? Or does it mean more? And so we must humble ourselves, come before His Word, and let it speak to us and not put our subjective opinion upon it. 
And so we ask the question, what does the destruction of the wicked look like? Well, one of the most notable texts that we're all familiar with is uh, in, comes from Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 16 on the rich man and Lazarus. You don't have to turn there. I'm sure we're, we're all pretty familiar with that story. And we know what happened. The rich man dies and we're told he goes to Hades. And Lazarus dies and he goes to the bosom of Abraham. And in verse 23, this is what we read. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. Now how is he being described? He's being described as being in torment, in anguish, so much so that he just needs the tip of his tongue to be cooled. And yet people will say, well, this doesn't prove anything. This is, this is figurative language. These are symbolic expressions, right? parabolic language. This isn't literal. But even if that's the case, symbolic expressions are symbolic expressions of some reality. It's figurative language about some truth because that's the way symbolic language works, doesn't it? When we talk about God and we say that He has wings or eyes or a hand or hair, we're not actually describing God, right? Everyone's cool with that, right? No, we're, we're using language to help us point us to the reality of God. But those things actually don't describe Him. Right? So it points us to a reality. But what's even more obvious is that the authors are forced to use this type of figurative language because we don't have adequate language to describe in detail the nature exhaustively of what hell means. We don't have the language for it. We cannot uh, capture it in our minds. None of you will be able to imagine it. And yet we are given instructions of what it will be like we are told what it will be like. And yet these descriptions that we are given, they're true descriptions. They're telling us something about hell. Something about eternal destruction. Right? And so in Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, we read that hell is described as a place of utter darkness. We're told in Matthew 25 that Jesus will say when those come to Him, Lord, Lord, didn't we profess Your name? He'll say, depart from Me, you workers of lawlessness. And so what we do know is that destruction means not being in the presence of God. That's one thing we do know. right? Not having the light of Christ shine upon them. That is something we do know. Because right now, brothers and sisters, unbelievers, just like you and I, experience God's grace. Everything they have is by God's grace. Their family, their friends, their Jobs, the rain, the snow, the hearing of the gospel, all God's grace. All God's grace. But on that day of the Lord, when He returns and they are cast into the pit of hell, all of this grace that they receive will be removed. No sun, no rain, no gospel, no laughter and joking with friends. Nothing good. Nothing pleasant. But instead, pain and torment. 
This is what the rich man described, the need that his tongue be cooled because he's being tormented in this flame. Now, we've all been burned at some point in our life, haven't we? Maybe you got home and you were really hungry and you, you tossed the pizza in the oven and as soon as it buzzed, you took it out, you cut it and you scarfed it down and immediately you regretted it because you burned the top of your mouth. I've done that a lot. That's why I use that as an example. Or maybe you, at night, when the kids go to bed, you ran a nice warm bath. You didn't check the temperature. You stuck your foot in, and before you know it, you were right back out because it burned your foot. Or we've all experienced what being sunburned is like, right? So we all have some experience with the pain and agony of being burned. But our pain and our torment from being burned is only something that's temporal. The pain and agony accompanied with end times destruction is forever. Jesus says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Nobody weeps if they're dead. There's no reason to weep, is there? There's no reason to gnash your teeth against God if you cease to exist. No, Jesus is describing for us conscious, eternal torment. A conscious torment which Paul says in our text will be one that the ungodly cannot escape. When Christ descends and the day of the Lord comes, all who have opposed Christ will not escape His judgment. This is what he says in verse 3. right At the end of it. There is peace and security. Sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. There's no place to hide. And so we see The day of the Lord is a day that will bring finality. The day of the Lord for the ungodly will be a day that is final. And yet, as we read this, what does it mean for us? Well, it means what Peter, excuse me, what Paul will later say. You just move your eyes down to verse 9, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. He says this For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. You see, if you are a believer here today, you have the promise that when the day of the Lord comes, when Christ returns, you have eternal life. You will be with the Lord. This is that gospel promise that the Lord opened our hearts to receive when we receive the message of the gospel. You had the promise that whether you are alive when the day of the Lord comes or whether you have already died, you will be risen to be with the Lord forever, for all eternity, in the presence of our Lord. Just as the unbeliever will be cast out of the presence of God, we have the promise to be brought into the presence of God. Just as the unbeliever will no longer experience God's grace when he returns, we have the promise of experiencing God's grace in its fullness. God's grace in its fullness. We will be filled to the brim, brothers and sisters, to our each and every one of yours capacity with all of God's grace, overflowing with the grace of God. As the unbeliever will experience everlasting torment and agony, we will experience indescribable joy. And so then lastly, as we draw to a close, knowing this, what's our responsibility? What's our responsibility? Well, if you understand the finality of the day, we must not be idle. 
We must not be lazy and content and say, oh, great, I'm saved, so I don't have to worry about any of this. No, but rather, we should not want this end for anyone. When we hear what that destruction means, we should desire salvation for everybody. And so what does that mean for the the Christian parent? It means that we train our children up in godliness, knowing what the end will be for those who do not believe, and knowing that how can we neglect so great a duty? For each of you individually as believers, it is your duty to always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you, whether that's to an unbelieving parent or spouse or sibling, or co-worker, or person off the street. For the believing spouse, what this means is to always and at all times be living in a manner that is pleasing to the Lord, pure and holy conduct, that you might win your unbelieving spouse by your conduct. As a church, it means for us that we are to do what the church is called to do. Simply proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the word of God and allow the spirit to go forth and to work in the hearts of men, women, and children everywhere. Please bow your heads with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we read and we we see that the, the day of the Lord is a will be a final day We pray, Lord, that you would give us strength and energy, that you would enliven our souls, that, Father, we would make sure ourselves that we are continuing in the faith, that we would be more fervent in sharing your word with others and proclaiming the gospel, knowing the finality of such a day and not hoping that any would perish. And Father, we know that you are long-suffering, that you are patient for this reason, that your word would go forth to the ends of the world and that all the elect would be saved. And so, Father, we pray for these ends. And we ask all this in Christ's name we pray. Amen.